Here we go. It's another episode of Life of Brian. We're very excited because Brian's with us. Look at that. There he is, Brian Maddox. Who, who would have thought that this could happen? Who would have expected that I'd be on this show? And here I am. Exactly. Uh, fresh for an appearance uh, live at the MCG on the Meatloaf stage. Yeah. Yeah. What a what a wonderful day that was. Um, um, had to get there. Is there a about- little plaque? Or a little, you know, like dog excrement, like a like a dog turd nailed into the well, in, into the floor there where he stood. Well, it, it did stink a bit in the in the <laughs> centre vocal part, but um, uh, no. Um, but you know, I wanted to. You know, I just wanted to go out there and go, "Who wants to hear a meatloaf song?" But my friend from the AFL said, who booked us, said, "Do not do that. It's still a sore point with the AFL." And there were so many great meatloaf jokes that I had, you know, because, you know, at a gig like that, you can't tell a long joke. You only can just sort of yeah. say a line because, the you know, the sound's so terrible. Yeah. Um, but actually it was surprisingly good. Our sound guys did a really good job actually because, you know, the sound check there, so like the only thing coming out of the speakers around the stands is the vocals. It's like, hang on a minute. Well, there'll, no there'll, still, there'll still be people in the southern stand this Saturday who'll hear you singing because it'll still be rolling around the top of that uh, that stand. It's quite freaky the way the sound works in that in that auditorium. Well, I don't know how many was at the game. I, I don't know, somebody, one of the staff suggested there's 50,000. All right. And, and, you know, for those in the band that hadn't played at the footy before, I you know, I've done it to the grand final and I've done um, – you know, uh, final uh, four weeks before Meatloaf went on. And um, <laughs> they're sort of, you know, we're looking at the stands while the game's on and say 60,000, I don't know. And um, the guys go, wow, this looks all right. And I go, you got to understand, we're going to lose about 20,000 to go and have a piss, buy a pie and get some <laughs> beer, you know. And fair enough, yeah, that's exactly what happened. Um, but, yeah. you know. Reverse you, you rock just, and roll mentality. Normally when the band comes on, you don't do, you've done all those things. But at the football, when the band comes on, time for a piss and a pie. Here we go. <laughs> yeah, well, the band comes on, yeah, well. So, you know, we're still playing at 25, 30, 35,000. I don't know. It's yeah, hard to tell. So, yeah, it was good and um, I thought we played well and, um, you know, just it's such a thrill just, you know, you walk into the joint, you know, and when it's empty and you're standing there looking at the stands, it's just it's pretty awesome. And, um, you yeah. know, of course, when you're, when you're in the band room, we were in the, the cricketers change room, it was our band room, but you just feel the urge to do a bit of coaching. <laughs> so I'm there with the guys in the band and I'm going, all right, fellas. What you served up last night was shit. I tell you what, you could root my wife and murder my kids and I wouldn't feel any worse than I did last night. Now, today's a new day. Tim, I like your jacket. All right. We've gone through the labour. Let's deliver the baby. You know, every, you just can't help but do coaching cliches. All oh, and I'm sure Scott Kahn and Sean Kelly were just, uh, you know, about to burst through the banner and, uh, you know. Uh, yes, well, anyway. Ah, uh, well, what a great day. Let's Thanks talk about, uh, well, it was a great day because your team won and they won emphatically and you're oh. all, all you, no, we're not talking about that. Uh, we're talking about Murcotts because they are our program sponsor and then we're talking about the two great guests we've got. Murcotts, uh, telephone number, Brian? one three hundred triple five five seven six. 555 Kev. One more time, 1-300-555-576. Five seven six. Now you only have to ring it once, and it will change a lot about your life and a lot about someone else's life. If you get a gift voucher and give it to them, or go and do a, a defensive driving course, an advanced driving course, depending on where you are in the world of your driving, um, go and talk to them. Uh, ring that number or jump on their website, mercots.edu.au. It will change your life and people around you, like us, who are driving on the same roads as you. Yes. We need you to be better. Now, go on the show today. Uh, we've got Ray Burton. Oh, I am woman, hear me roar. Well, he wrote that. He co-wrote that song with Helen Reddy. 
I know. How about him, eh? Yeah, and uh, had lunch with you just the other week there on the Gold Coast at one of those uh, sort of survivor lunches that you guys have. Yeah, he looks a lot like Rolf Harris, and I suggested that he should do a Rolf Harris tribute show, which I don't think went down too well. But <laughs> not not even with Rolf these days. <laughs> I well, have thought. I wonder how a Rolf Harris tribute oh, show would no, go. No one wonders about that, Brian. No one. What about you have? You know those those you know Night of the Stars. They have it. You know casino. You have. Rolf Harris, Gary Glitter, oh, tribute. And oh, God. There's, and oh. there's another one. I can't remember who oh, the other one is. Oh, there's several. Oh, a comedian, that, a comedian comes out and does a bit of Bill Cosby. Yeah. That'd be all right. Well, yes, you could, you know, emceed by Jimmy Savile. Uh, there's any number of, uh, of people you could throw into the mix there, but we won't get into that. Uh, we mm. do have uh, uh, Graham Goldman from 10CC, the man who uh, he sang Gridlock Holiday. He wrote, God, he's written some great songs. He wrote Bus Stop for the Hollies. He wrote For Your Love for the Yardbirds uh, and then, of course, got wow. into 10CC and wrote some unbelievably great songs with 10CC um, who had three number one hits, three different singers, uh, an incredible band, though. one of the most unpredictable bands of their time in terms of you never quite knew what the next song was going to sound like. They always surprised you. So we'll talk to Graham. They're about to tour, uh, so uh, we're going to have a little chat about that as well, uh, but mostly about uh, 10CC and uh, and those days of writing hits for people like the Yardbirds and the Hollies. So that's wow. all coming up. But um, Kev, mm-hmm. where do they get the name 10CC? What's that about? Uh, I believe it was the amount... Uh, the the folklore story is it was mm. to do with the amount of sperm that a male mm. um, contributes to the uh, relationship on any given occasion. Okay, fair enough. Um, that's probably a better idea than calling it spoofer. So, um, okay, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Imagine what Spotify would have been called if that had been the case. Anyway, um, that is... I'm that- not... And he wrote... The rather rude song that was, I'm not in. Well, he was involved in the writing love. of I'm not in love. Yes, he was. Absolutely. I'm not in. No, you're missing the point, Kevin. I'm not in No, love. once again, your punctuation is very poor. I remember that from grade no. four at uh, uh, St Ulysses or wherever you went. Um, no. <laughs> your punctuation was terrible then and it's still terrible now. Let's get into uh, Ray Burton. He's our first guest and uh, he, of course, is the man who co-wrote that monster hit, uh, I am woman, but he had a really interesting. He's got a really interesting musical history. Apart from that, let's delve into it. Hello, hello, Ray. It's Kevin Hillier and Brian Mannix. How you going? How you going, Kev and Brian? How you going, mate? Good on you, Ray. Yeah, really, really well, mate. And yourself? Yeah, yeah, I'm going good. Let's get stuck into it, uh, Brian. Do you want to start? No, I'll let you start, Jeff. Okay. Well, I want to talk about the early days, if I can, Ray, because I I grew up watching uh, some of the bands you were in in the early days on television. Yeah. The Deltones, yeah. obviously. You remember the Deltones for for not a long time, but uh, for for a while. Yeah. Well, I was I was the pup in the band there. Yeah. Um, I was the youngest guy. Everyone's about five to six years older than me, but. I, I auditioned and after, you know, a half a dozen other people and I got the gig. So, yeah, it was, it was really good exercise for me learning about vocal groups and all of that because I hadn't done any vocal group stuff before that, you know. But, um, yeah, yeah, had a lot of fun. Yeah. Yep. And they, they were kind of – they were a boy band before there were boy bands. Yeah, yeah, yeah they sort of were. And then from there you went to the executives – yeah, exactly. We were a harmony band too because we had three lead singers. I took a lot of that harmony knowledge with me to the executives and we were doing fifth dimension stuff and, you know, quite complex harmony stuff uh, that no other bands in the country were doing at that time. You know, Mississippi weren't around and LRB weren't around, so we were about the only ones doing it. Really interesting little band, I, I thought, the executives, because you, you did a Stephen Stills song, which at that, that stage, Stephen Stills was, no one had really heard of Stephen Stills. I mean, that was that was pre-Buffalo Springfield. I think they did a version of Sit Down, I Think I Love You, but you, you kind yeah. of did that before anybody, before For What It's Worth and all those Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young things, you, you did a Stills song, which I, I found really interesting in, in retrospectively. We've got Pat Alton to thank for that. Pat okay. was with Festival. Pat's now passed away, unfortunately, but 
he was onto a lot of the imports, and he'd say, "Here's, a, I found a song for you. I think you should do this." We ended up covering them like before a lot of other people had even heard them. Yeah, yeah. is that where you started writing songs? I know you wrote a couple of songs. One I remember well uh, seeing on uh, on Uptight was was Christopher Robin, which which you wrote. No, it goes way back before that, mate. I was I was signed to CBS with a, a band I had called the Telstars. I had a song called Reef Ride, which is a surfing kind of thing, and it was a huge hit in Sweden. Yeah. <laughs> no surfing in Sweden, right? <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, well, every, everyone surfs in Sweden. Everyone knows that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's surf on snow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what inspired you to yeah. get into music, right? Oh, my folks were in the business. I was a band room child, right? Oh, okay. And uh, dad was a singer and mum was a singer and a piano player and so I'd hang out in the band room while they, they were all out there playing. So consequently, I got a lot of the old standards in my head. And they say, well, yeah, you're not old enough to remember those songs. I said, well, yeah, I was a, a three-year-old in the band room, right? <laughs> Getting saturated with this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I don't suppose you had much option but to get into music, with you, you know, with that kind of upbringing. But, um, yeah, okay. Yeah. So you weren't a Beatles, you weren't a Beatles fan or anything like that. A lot of people say, "Oh, I saw the Beatles," and then I got into music. But oh, oh yeah, love the Beatles. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, right. I actually played classical piano from about oh, five years old to about twelve years old, and then um, rock and roll hit, and I said, well, "Stuff that! I want a Stratocaster." Tell <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so, me, I'm going to get some girls. You know, <laughs> stuff this classical stuff. So, uh, yeah, that happened, and then I started into my rock and roll school band, and it all blossoms there, I guess, yeah. Now, sure. before we leave the executives, I have one other question I want to ask about the executives, because you did an episode, uh, or the band did an episode of Skippy the Bush Kangaroo. That was before my time. It was before your time. I wasn't sure. Yeah, yeah, no, that was probably a guy called Brian Patterson. I came in later on, you know, and Brian Brian left the band and then they approached me. They bribed me. <laughs> he said, we're all going to America. You need, do you want to join the band? And I've been joined, wanting to go to America for about eight years. And I said, of course I'll join the band. So I've joined the band and we all went um, to the US, first class accommodation and seven course meals three times a day and all of that. And we all got off the, off the boat about nine kilos heavier than we got on the boat. Yeah. And uh, it was a wonderful time, though, and the Acapulco Gold wasn't bad either. <laughs> <laughs> so what was that? Was that the early 70s? Was that 70, 71, around there, or before then? Yeah, 1969, actually. We we went on a ship called the Oriana, which isn't around anymore, P&O line, and then um, we came back on the Orsova. We used to call it the Arsova because we got caught in some very big seas off Hawaii, and it was just could talk about rock the boat. There's people seasick everywhere, but well, you, you, you're sparking memory cells here, Kevin. So, what did you go to America because you had a deal there, or what was what was the reason to go to the states with the executives? Yeah, yeah, we had a deal there. We and the manager, actually, Bobby Rydell. Remember that name? Yeah, yeah. Well, his manager was out here and he saw us perform, and he was blown away with us. He said, "Oh, look, you guys have to go to the states. You know, you're a walk up start. You know, you're across between the." You know, the Mumbas and the Puppers and, you know, a couple of other different U.S. West Coast bands. He said, you've got to get there. So he sponsored us over there. We started recording for uh, family productions and the band split up. <laughs> After about three months recording, we had a producer that made us do things over and over and over. It's like Groundhog Day. So the band split up and I'd already had a dozen songs of my own. So, look, I'm going to go to an album of my own. And then Gino Cunico said, well, why don't, why don't we do a duo? Because duos were really huge at the time, with Longers and Messina and Seals and Croft and all yeah, of that. Yeah. So we did a duo. It was called Burton and Cunico. And we toured at least 48 of the U.S. states, doing all the colleges and the universities and work with um, Jimmy Webb at Brigham Young University in Utah. Oh, we did some amazing stuff. Billy Joel, you know, toured with him. Yeah. Did you make the record, right? No, it never got made. But did you do a duo record? You said you had, a, you had some songs. You oh, we did, yeah. Record. We did a duo record. It's called Strive, Seek, Find. Yeah, yeah. And it, how, it took how did, quite 
we actually topped Sly and the Family Stone for one month there and the and on the charts and we thought, Wow, you know, because you know, we really liked Sly and the Family Stone and we were doing we were doing better than they were. We said, What's going on here? You know, they like us. <laughs> what happened to Gino, Ray? I have I've not uh, not seen anything of Gino. Is he still with us? Yeah, he's still around. He's over there. He, he ended up in the restaurant business. Okay. And um, Rich Clark, the, the drummer, he's still over there. And I don't know if he's still playing drums, but he played drums for quite a while. He played drums with Billy Joel, a lot of different bands over there he was drummer for. He was quite a good drummer, yeah. But he's still over there. Gino's still over there. Gary, the bass player, passed away, unfortunately. And um, Brian King's still still around. He's He's down around Dapto way somewhere in New South Wales. Yeah. What about yeah. Carol Carol King, the singer? Well, that's very mysterious because she ran away with a singer called John Sands and I'm, became I'm John. Yeah, yeah. Well, she became a Seventh Day Adventist minister, and yeah, she's become very, very reclusive. I haven't talked to her for years and years and years. You know. Oh wow! Because John Sands was the, and I mean this in the most the nicest, the pretty boy who came out of Brisbane who had a couple of, um, a couple of, oh, I won't say huge hits, but a couple of medium sized yeah. hits in that late part of the sixties. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, he ran away with Carol. Ah, and, there you go. Yeah, I'm, presu- yeah. I'm presuming John Sands is not the John Sands that made the game Twister. <laughs> no, no, no. That's a, that's no. another John Sands. Okay, just no. the listeners, I just want to clear that up. No. Not the same, John Sands. <laughs> so that's the executives. We've got the executives done and dusted now. Now, so where where to next? When does when do you go to America and start? You know, sort of carving your your niche out as a songwriter. Well, uh, with the executives, that's when I ran into Helen Reddy over there. We'd already been together, well, not together, but we knew each other from working the tracks, you know, and the RSLs and the league clubs and all of that all around, and. So we were like, um, you know, two patriots in Hollywood and we just hung out together and she invited me to a, a few of the women's lips meetings, right? Uh, and I was the only bloke there, which is like quite um, disconcerting. And um, I would cringe in a corner while they all went about their husband. And it was like, oh, my God, you know, what am I doing here? And da, da, da. So she invited me to a couple of them. She was quite adamant about it and, you know, wanted me to be there. And I said, look. If you feel that positive about this women's lib thing, why don't you write something down? So she wrote it down, and, and it's more or less in prose form. And I took it home and, and reshaped it and did all that, and then recorded it on a four-track T-Ax, bounced it over to a two-track Revox, then bounced it back onto the T-Ax so I could put an extra two tracks on, and then put it on a cassette and presented it to her. And they went crazy. They went, wow. This is great. And so they took it as Cabot Records. It's what we what you call a sleeper. It sat on an album. I don't know how to love him album. Sat on the album for two years doing absolutely nothing. Then they released the movie Stand Up and Counted, you know, the feminist movie, and they married the song to the movie and the rest is history. It just it took off like a firework display. You know? Yeah. And I had a number one hit in every country of the world just about. Wow. It still gets played. I know. A thousand times a day, I'd reckon. Somebody is probably playing it right now. Well, I wrote it in August 1970. There you go. Wow. And, and we went on the album in about September, October 1970, and it sat there until 1972 until it got released with the, with the movie, right? And then, yeah, it just went boom. <laughs> yeah. Now, Ray, yeah. everyone listening to this, and and Brian and I included, would be sitting back here now thinking, "My God, that's a that's a you know what a what a watershed moment that is in your life to have a number one song uh, all around the world. This should be the yeah. absolute start of the of the best period of your life." But it it, it didn't kind of work out that way, did it? No, uh, look, it's a long story. It, it's, it's actually a movie, right? You know, because we went over there, and this same manager, Bobby Rydell's manager, who's now passed away as well. All this is a long time ago, you know, back in the deep mist of time. It turned out he took all our passports and sent them to a lawyer in New York, right? He said, I'm going to get you all green cards. And we were, we were a bit green ourselves. We said, oh, excellent, you know. So we handed over our passports. As it turned out, he owed the lawyer 
in, in, in New York, about 40 grand and hadn't paid it. So the lawyer held onto our passport and meanwhile our B1, B2 uh, visas expired. So then we had to return to, to Australia and I didn't want to do that because my career was just starting to, you know, starting to take off. So I went to Canada and tried to fix it up and that bounced. That had, so I had to come back as a Canadian with Canadian ID that I borrowed off a mate of mine. Uh-huh. And then uh, a few months later, I went down to Mexico to try and do it, and that bounced as well. And so, anyway, I ended up back in Australia, standing on the on the shoreline, Bondi Beach, staring out over the ocean while my song was number one all over the world. And I couldn't do anything about it. Yeah, so then I went to the uh, consulate in Sydney about six months later and had a good chat with him. He stamped my passport, and I went back, and I went back to the States again, you know, and then chased up money that I was owed and, uh, yeah, yeah, all of that. Well, that's the other thing, I guess, that immediately you would think is that this is this is going to be, this has set you up for life and all that, but you had to, you had to struggle to get your dough, didn't you? Oh, yeah, 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 they, they ripped me off for heaps, yeah. And what, uh, on what pretext do they deny you, your money? How did, how did that sort of work, right? Well, you know, what, what excuse can they give you to say, no, no, you, you're not getting the money? What, what did they say? What kind of shit did they well, give you? I was in Australia unable to get out, right, mm-hmm. because of the immigration thing. They held the aces. They, you know, they had the advantage, and I couldn't do anything about it. And I, and I had a couple of lawyers here try to do something about it, and they couldn't do anything about it. So, yeah, eventually I, I did win a court case in 1997, and but because of the American statute of limitations, I couldn't go back to, you know, the period where it made most of the money. Oh. Oh, okay. it's a movie. It's a movie. Yeah, it is, oh. isn't it? Yeah. So now, now I, I don't want to, um, you know, transgress any legal areas here or anything, but was, was, yeah. the, was the problem with Jeff Wald and, and Helen's management or was, what, was the problem with the record company or who was it who was hanging out the money and not giving you the, the dough? No, well, Jeff Wald was manager. Yeah, sorry, no, we lost you. Jeff Wald was your manager as well as Helen's. Uh, he was. He was my manager for a short period there. Yeah, but he was Helen's manager and husband. Yeah, Jeff had passed away, and so was Helen. You know, every everyone's gone. I'm the I'm the last man standing on this ship. <laughs> I, I imagine Ray that the song would have been discredited to you and Helen. I presume is that right? Yes. Yes. Well, yeah, you know, I suppose, oh, I know the record, you know, as a writer, you get 6% or something like that, so surely your 3% should have just been held for you. I don't understand how they can deny you the money. Um, if your name's on the record, it's, uh, it just seems really bizarre to me. Oh, yeah, I know. I mean, um, they have ways. Yeah. I had a good lawyer. Well, I had a, I had a, not a good lawyer, a bad lawyer in the U.S. and uh, had him represent me and he was talking to their lawyer behind the scenes on me and all those sorts of things that go on in Hollywood. You know I mean, I'm not the first one, you know. Yeah. yeah. Did did the song open a lot of doors for you? I know, I know you, Helen did a song on the on the airport soundtrack that, that you wrote and all that, but did it open <coughs> doors for you as much as, as we would all think it would? Well, not necessarily because it, it would, it did or would have in America, but I couldn't be there in America. Yeah. So... You know, I came back from America and then formed Airs Rock and, and signed up with Michael Ganinsky in Mushroom in, in, in Melbourne. I lived in Melbourne for four years, you know, touring with Airs Rock and doing all that. So that was my next move, right? Yeah, and then I left Airs Rock and then I came up back up to Sydney and did my own album for Warner Brothers. I got signed to Warner Brothers, a thing called Dreamers and Night Flyers. Yep. So, yeah, so I did that. Long story, okay. Yeah, Ayers <laughs> Rock was an interesting band for its time. I mean, Duncan Maguire, we'd we'd seen him in, in focus with with Doug Doug Parkinson. Yeah, and Mark yeah. Ken- Mark Kennedy was everyone's go to drummer for every session in the world in Australia, wasn't he? Oh, fabulous drummer! I love Mark's playing. You know, love him. Love the guy. He's still down there in Melbourne somewhere. I'm not sure where he is, but he was quite sick for a while, unfortunately. Yeah, but he's still working. It always struck me that Ayers Rock was a band that didn't quite uh, – no one knew where to put you. No one knew what, what 
kind of rock and roll uh, sort of genre to put you in. Yeah, I know. Well, I, I kind of left the band because of that. You yep. know what I mean? I had, you know, I had a whole bunch of songs. They were more West Coast, California rock sort of stuff, you know? They wanted to go off on the, the weather report jazz angle. And I said, guys, this isn't going to sell too well. You know, people just, you know, might be very good, but they, they don't get it, you know? So, yeah, they did that. And I, and I actually pretty much fired myself. You know, I said, look, okay, I'm out of here. And I went backpacking in New Zealand for three months, yeah, contemplating my, my life. <laughs> and what did you come up with, Ray? <laughs> <laughs> Give it up. <laughs> get, out of, get out of the music business. What are you doing? You know, you should have been a plumber. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. It's something you can't give up. You know, it's like being an artist, a painter or something. You know, you, you, you're you never going to stop painting. You know, it's the same thing. I'm never going to stop writing songs. I'm still, I'm still doing it now. And I don't know whether I've got to be mailing them off to the moon or whatever. But, I mean, I've got about 14 or 15 really good songs at the moment that I can make an album with, but who's going to buy the album? Yeah. You know? It's not much um, incentive to write songs these days because, no. you know, they, nobody buys records anymore and then you get your song on Spotify and you get a million hits and you get $1,000 for it. So, you I know, know, I know I, what you mean. I've got, I've got a shitload of songs and I just sort of think, well, you know, I'll record a couple for my sake, but... Um, yeah, but yeah, yeah, it's not not like the old days. You go right. I need ten songs to do another album. Or yeah, those I, days are just gone. It's really frustrating. Yeah, I know it's very very frustrating if you're a writer. You know, the only way yeah. you can sort of fuck out of it these days is if you synchronize it with uh, uh, visuals. You know, like with a movie or you know, Netflix or something like that. If you can synchronize it with that, you'll get some residuals and you'll get uh, what they call synchronization money. You know, yeah, but us. Other than that, no, mate, those days are long gone, Brian, you know, long gone, how many, mate. How many, speaking of songs in movies, how many of your songs have been in movies? No. Nah, Iron Woman would have been in a few, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, that's been in a few. Uh, what was the one uh, with Julia Roberts It was in that one? Uh, uh, and Sex in the City movie it was in that. And Best Friend when Hel- Helen was the nun on the plane in an airport 75, best friend. That was one of mine, best friend. Yep. Yeah, not many actually. There's <laughs> oh, a few. It's hard to get in place, you know. That's, that'd be a great thrill, I reckon. Um, you know, like you know, the first time you hear one of your songs on the radio, it's, it's a fantastic moment. But then I think, you know, going to the movies and, and hearing your song on a movie, that'd be that'd be a pretty good special feeling, I would think. Well, it is, it is, but they've got to do something about the credits, you know, because, um, you know, it's always the, the songwriters and the music, it's not just me, it's everyone, and the, and it's always the very, very, very end, right? Yeah. They've got all, all the toilet sweepers and janitors and everything that will come before you, right, <laughs> on, the, on the credits, and uh, you, you're the last person sitting in the movie just to see your name at the end. Yeah. <laughs> So what are you up to these days, Ray? I mean, you obviously you mentioned you're still writing songs and you're still, uh, you know, got a bag full of songs there. So what what are you doing? Well, I just did the uh, Palm Beach 100-year celebration. I wrote a song for that because, because it's called Between Two Creeks and my music and my notes and my words are still out there in the ether, <laughs> you know. As they should be. Yeah. I know you mentor some songwriters and stuff. What do you What do you say to young aspiring songwriters who are coming through now, Ray? What What advice do you give them? Run for your life. <laughs> <laughs> nah, look, uh, the, you know, if you're inspired to do these sorts of things, like songwriting, you, you just got to keep doing it and be persistent. Persistence rules over everything. If you just persistent, keep knocking on doors, and one day one of the doors is going to open. You know, like. For instance, like Savage Garden. I don't know if you remember Savage Garden, do you? Yeah. Yeah. They had 140 knockbacks. Really? Yeah. 140 knockbacks before. I, I, don't, I can't remember the company that picked up on it. But but look, look at Savage Garden. How many hits did they have? Yeah. You know? About four really big ones. Yep. And Bowie got knocked back for the first nine record companies that he went to. 
Thank you, Steve. Nine said nah, and so of course the Beatles got knocked back by um, yeah. RCA. I know. Where are the visionaries, Brian? <laughs> so, I don't know. so Ray, when uh, when they when they write your epitaph and it says the man who wrote "I Am Woman," how do you feel about that? I know, I know. I wish, I wish it wasn't the only song that was right up there. You know what I mean? Oh, I've got a Jesus. Most people that kill have one that big, and and that synonymous with their with you know their work. I mean, it's a massive achievement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know, it's, it, I know. I get it from that angle. But I mean, uh, I just wish there was like half a dozen other biggies that go with it. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I've got I've got a sequel to it called "That's What It's Like to Be a Man." And uh, <laughs> how, did yeah. that, how did that go down, right? You should be you should be enormously proud of that. I mean, that's a, that's a it's an iconic song. It's it's just a bloody benchmark uh, wo- song for the world, really. It ended up being an anthem yeah. for the women's thing, you know. And there, it's in the school curriculums, and there's, you know, school schoolgirl choirs singing it, and it's just it's just right out there, yeah, it's right out there. Uh, and I'll probably yeah. still be playing fifty years from now. Yeah, well, I'll be well and truly gone by then. I'll be, uh, yeah, I'll be a little empty ball floating in the universe. <laughs> I think you'll be, I think you'll be moving a little slower, Ray. But I, I don't think you know you. Yeah. I wouldn't write yourself out off yet. You know, I think there's still a few more adventures to be had. Oh, you know, there's always adventures to be had. Yeah, I'm not going to be uh, – I'm not slowing down anytime soon, you know. Uh, good on yeah. you. Uh, well, yeah. I know you'll bump into Brian, another one of those Gold Coast uh, survivor lunches uh, that uh, that he's, <laughs> he's now frequenting now. And he's, and he's, yeah, a lot of fun. And he's yeah, old yeah, age. yeah, they're real yeah. good. You know why he yeah. goes, Ray? He goes because he's the youngest rock star in the room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel, I feel like Brad Pitt. Like, yeah, yeah, right. You know, yeah. Everybody else is in their seventies. I'm in my sixties. Yeah, beauty. Yeah, there you go. There you go. You're young. Thanks for your time, mate. We really appreciate it, and uh, and good luck for the future. Thanks so much for having a chat to us. Well, thank you very much, guys. Yeah. Right, thanks, Ray. Cheers. Yeah, cheers, mate. Thanks, thanks Ray. See ya. <laughs> Woman, hear me roar. That's a Time a kangaroo down, sport. That, Time that, a kangaroo down. That, that amazes me that that whole legal and and uh, tying your money up and not getting your money for this. I, I, I'm still scratching my head about how he is not 
uh, in a yeah. in some big, huge, great big mansion somewhere, just counting his money from his royalty checks every five seconds. Well, you know, it probably gets played. Oh, all the time. You know, 50,000 times a day or probably a million times a day and it'll get played for another 50 years. And and used in everything, used in movies and used in television yeah. series and all those things. Yeah. Yeah, he should, he should own Queensland. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, he should. He should own your place. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Some, well, someone bad luck, should. I do. <laughs> yes. I do. No, Some, I own it. It's okay. all mine. I'm, I'm not paying off a loan. All right. Well, uh, the terrific uh, that uh, that we got Ray on the program because I, I, I really I loved the executives and the early stuff that he did before he wrote I Am Woman. So good to have him on the program and uh, stay well and uh, and healthy, Ray. Uh, now let's get to our second guest, who is uh, the man who, of course, is about to tour here with Ten uh, CC, founding member of Ten CC, and a man who wrote some of the uh, the most iconic songs of the mid uh, mid sixties for bands like the Hollies and Herman's Hermits and the Yardbirds. Uh, uh, his name I is Graham. A, I think they wrote a song for a band called Sprog as well, uh, Kev. No, they didn't. Um, <laughs> they did write it. Did he write the Hot Legs song for? No, I don't think he did. Uh, but let's get to Graham Gulman uh, from Ten CC. Very lovely man, and it was fantastic to catch up and have a chat with him. All right. Hello. Hello, Graham. How are you? I'm fine, Kevin. Yes, yes. it's Kevin. How are you? I'm, I'm very pleased and privileged to talk to you. Thank you, mate. Um, and looking forward to your tour. Yeah. Uh, you're well? Yeah. Everything's good? Yeah, very good indeed. Thank you very much. Let's start by talking about uh, what a, an amazing legacy 10cc and your songwriting uh, is is for you. How do you sort of just sit in your, your house in London now look, and think about that. Do you, do you get a chance to have a think about what you've achieved in that 50-plus years that you've been doing this? <laughs> Only when you mention it. <laughs> uh, otherwise, no. I'm more interested in what I'm doing now and what, what we're going to do in the future. You know, I, I, don't, I tend not to think about... You know, it's like I, I've been asked to write a book many times, but I don't want to go back over the past. So there's too much good stuff going on now and, and in the future, so it's, uh, it's, it doesn't interest me. So when you when you your writing process these days, is it a different writing process to what you did when you were, you know, in 1963 or four when you were churning out some, some of those great songs? No, the, the process is, is pretty much the same. In fact, it's definitely the same. It just there's all different ways that I, I, I get to write songs, whether it's just sitting down with the guitar and sort of messing around and then find some chords that suggest a, a mood that suggests a lyric and something magical happens, yeah. um, which it's a, a bit of a mystery to me how that happens. Um, <laughs> or think, or you hear somebody say something or an interesting phrase uh, that you pick up. Uh, so there's no no set way of, of, of writing. Uh, or if you're writing, I do, I do quite a lot of collaboration. Uh, and that that's always, it, what's inspiring about that is, is that you want to come up with something. So that that's quite inspiring in its own funny way. Yeah. And when you've written with people and you've written with, so, you know, some great writers, Eric Stewart, mm-hmm. uh, Kevin and Lowell, obviously, Andrew yeah. Gold, who I think is, you know, musically brilliant. Uh, so they yeah. they clearly would have challenged you in that time as well as you challenging yourself, I guess. There, yes, I think what happens is with collaboration, it brings out something different in you. I mean, I've worked with sort of um, Nashville writers, so that it's not country per se, but it's kind of it's kind of poppy, but it might have a kind of slight country edge, and I can hook into that. I think it's because of the I'm influenced by lots of different styles of music, so whoever I'm writing with can bring something different out of me. Uh, going back to your to your really early days, skiffle is the kind of music that is such a broad spectrum of music and, and has so many sounds and things going on, uh, as we saw with what the Beatles produced and they were into skiffle, and, yeah. as you were with Lonnie Donegan. That, that's, yes. one of the, that's one of those open book kind of musical uh, educations, isn't it? Yeah, and, and doesn't get talked about enough, I don't think. Uh, people just sort of cite sort of late American, late 50s American rock and roll, et cetera, and, which was as important. But Skiffle showed us that we could 
it was kind of started homemade music rather than, you know, relying on sort of, there were like big bands or, you know, jazz bands or whatever. But with Skiffle, it, it was it was kind of, it was simple music. It was easy to play. And, and it was very important, I think, in the development of uh, certainly of British uh, pop music. Well, you had, you had washboards and you had people making bass bass guitar sort of implements out of boxes and things. That's right. That you'd have a uh, like a bit of string on a on a on a rod attached to a, a box, <laughs> and it wouldn't make a note, but it just sort of make a dum 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 sound, <laughs> a rumbling. And that noise. was good. That was that was good enough. Yeah. Technology is something that has, has made enormous changes to, you know, my industry and the radio industry and, and obviously yeah. clearly made enormous changes to the recording process and all those things. Do you, have you, have yeah. you embraced and enjoyed those technical changes? Yeah, I have. It's been particularly during the lockdown where, you know, everybody's got studios at home uh, where it wasn't possible to be playing with other musicians, but everyone was recording, everyone was Every, all the musicians I know, everyone made their lockdown album, <laughs> um, and uh, me included. And um, but we were because of digital technology, we were, we were able to share files. Yeah, and that was that was great, you know. And uh, we wouldn't have been able to do that. So yes, so it's it's been a it's been a, a, a definitely a, a massive help to to us. Uh, well, there's so many other things about digital recording that makes it. Uh, Right. Has, has uh, the the technology changed the way that you go about writing a song, or you do you just sit down with the guitar and and a pen and paper and, and do it that way? Is that how it happens? Yeah, ba- yeah, basically. So sometimes I write stuff in my head. No, the actual writing process has not changed at all. It's just the recording process, really, and the being able to share files and work with people all over the world. So, how close to what you? either write in your head or write down on a piece of paper or play on the guitar, how close is what you come up with to what it finishes up like? Is it often disappointing? Is it often more no. more exciting or...? It's more exciting. It's better. It's better. You, you know, you because you write a song and it's just you and, the, you and the guitar, but then when you start recording, so you put bass on and other, other guitars, then you put the vocals on, then you start doing the harmonies. And that's when it kind of comes alive. If your instincts are good, you, you'll recognise that you have something good right away. Uh, and and also, if the song wasn't good enough for you, you wouldn't record it anyway. So when you took, I think it was Graham Nash and Tony Hicks into a into a toilet to play them yes. to play them <laughs> busts off. Are you telling me yeah. it, it sounded different in the in the you know the three man toilet that you were playing it at than, than, <laughs> than what I hear on the radio four million times? Well, the so- the song is the same, but <laughs> with the Hollies, great you know they're great playing and their brilliant voices. It sounds like a thousand times better. But they recognised that at the heart of it, there was a good song, yeah. and that's what it's all about. And so. With a lot of songs that of my generation, they can be played just on one instrument and they'll still sound great. But then, of course, when you add harmonies and other instrumentation, then it, it becomes something else. So when you go from the simplicity of being in a toilet with Tony Hicks and, and Graham Nash <laughs> playing Buster and yeah. then you go to what, what you guys did with I'm Not In Love in the studio, that is just holes apart, isn't it? Yeah, yeah but the thing is... Um, I do another show called Heartful of Songs, and yep. we do, which is kind of like a semi-acoustic show. So the versions are very, very cut down. And I've played "I'm Not in Love with Just Me and a Guitar," and it still sounds good because the song is good. It sounds obviously very different from the 10cc recording, but at the heart of it, you know, it starts with the song. Yeah. Oh well, I mean, and you and I are both Beatles babies, and and grew up listening. Right. To, and those songs can be orchestrated till the cows come home, but then you still hear "Yesterday" played on a guitar and a piano, and you go, "Oh wow!" Yeah, it's still fantastic. Do you still have "Oh wow" moments about some of the stuff that that you've written over the years? I, I think when I'm I've written something good, I might. I might not go, "Oh wow!" I might go, <laughs> "That's pretty good," <laughs> or "Good enough to." To finish, you know, like a song, when you start a song, it has to have legs, you know, to 
make you finish it. Um, when that happens, that's a, that's a wonderful feeling. I mean, the creative process is is so satisfying when you know you've got something good. That doesn't mean to say it's a hit or anybody else is going to record it or whatever, but, you know, this is a very good piece of work. Yeah. It, it resonates with you. And you, and hopefully what resonates with you will resonate, resonate with you. Yeah. What, what, I mean, what resonates with me will resonate with you. Yeah. Um, there's a, a lot of songwriters use the expression, I know it wrote itself. And for Correct. someone who's never written a song in his life, th- yeah. that, that just staggers me. Yeah, it it is. Every songwriter says the same thing. So you get it starts off, and I call it chasing the song because it's coming out, and I'm just like following it. Yeah, like what's happening here? How did it happen? I wasn't even conscious of it happening, but there it is. It's a it's a mystery, and I, I really I don't I tend not to want to know what the mystery is or how that works. I mean, there's some, I think there's something going on in your subconscious. Sometimes it's almost as if the song already exists in your in your subconscious and the right mood sort of brings it out. Yet in reading all the things that you've done, that experience in New York when you went and worked for the bubblegum people uh, of, of it sort of being a nine-to-five job and, a, and, a, and almost yeah. a sausage factory type existence was something that you that you really didn't enjoy at all. No, no, I didn't enjoy it at all, but it did have its some some good did come out of it in that uh I I I went back to to the UK to the studio that I was a partner in and Kevin Lol and Eric were there and we worked on those songs in in Stockport uh, at the at our own studio and that really helped to bring us all together. So I uh, although Artistically, it wasn't a, a very good time, uh, but it, it did benefit in a, it, us all in that it brought the uh, 10CC together. What what did it did it? Um, I mean, you can become cynic, cynical very easily in this industry. Did it make you cynical mm-hmm. about the songwriting process or the business as such of songwriting, or did you just go, okay, I, I did that for three months. That's all I can move on. And yeah, yeah. I mean, the idea for Kaznet's Cats, who were the company that uh, that asked me to go over to New York to work with them, was that they wanted to. I think they wanted to elevate the the product that they were making. So I wasn't really writing bubblegum songs, although they were famous for it. Yeah, uh, I, I was writing regular sort of pop songs. Yeah, and um, so I don't regret it because uh, uh, of the you know what it resulted in part to bringing Ten CC together. Yeah. When 10CC sort of was forming and it was at the back of Hot Legs and and you talked about Strawberry Studios, which was the studio that, uh, yeah. that you were a part owner of, when you were kind of yeah. mucking around and doing stuff and, and Donna was coming along and The Dean and I and Rubber Bullets and those those fabulous songs you did in those early days, did you know that you had a chemistry and a, and a, and a foursome that was actually going to be something really big? Yeah, we did. Yeah. We were very... Quietly confident that we would do something, and um, obviously we didn't we didn't know exactly how or what. But our first single was a was a big hit in the UK, so we knew we were we were doing something right. As a as a radio bloke who started on the radio in nineteen seventy three and played all these songs on the radio, the thing about Ten CC that I always loved was your unpredictability. Yeah, well we we had. Uh, certain not rules but but principles if you like in that we would take the song who first of all whoever wrote the song we all took ownership of the song as if it was our own in in so far as the production of it can we make it better i'm going to suggest that we change the chord here or rearrange it like this and there was that and there was also we would get the best person for the job to do whatever it was, whether it was playing guitar or lead guitar or singing, particularly the singing. So we had three number ones with Rubber Bullets, I'm Not In Love and Dreadlock Holiday, and there's three different singers singing lead vocals on those tracks because they were the singers that were best for the job. Yeah. Was that a... a 
park your ego at the door and we all walk in and uh, and just discuss it like gr- big grown-up human beings and not egomaniacal <laughs> rock stars? <laughs> you know, we were very good like that. It was when we try something, we used to have a little sign that said, next, so <laughs> someone would go in and try something and before put the sign up next. Um, but, no, we, we, we were... We were sensible about it, you know, uh, and it, it worked out very well for us. Because the band really, I mean, when, when you look at the band, the band had an embarrassment of riches, a bit like the Beatles in terms of, uh, you know, everyone could play all sorts of instruments, everyone could sing really well. So to get the, yeah. I guess, to get the gig to sing I'm Not In Love or Rubber Bullets or, you know, Dreadlock Holiday or whichever one it yeah. turned out to be was, was a sought-after gig. Yeah, and, and also we had... A, we ha- had our own studio as well. That was a very, very important part of uh, of our success. I think. Did that allow you to to kind of do the do the experimental thing where we'll all have a crack at singing, you know, Dreadlock Holiday or whatever? Yeah, we yeah we we had the time to do it. Who knows what would have happened if we'd have gone into a you know regular studio for three hours or six hours a day? It just gave us more freedom. I think. Yeah. When you're choosing the songs that you'll do on this on this tour that we're going to see in Australia, how hard is that yeah. to sit down and go through that catalogue of material and, and decide what you're going to do and what you're not going to do? It's not really difficult because I start off always as I'm I'm going to see the concert, so what do I want to hear? Yeah. So I know there's certain songs I have to hear them, and if I didn't, if we didn't play them, I'd go, "Why the hell are you not playing that?" You know. Um, so that that's. It's actually quite easy, really. But we've got enough songs, so many hits. But it, I think the the clever part is is the other songs that we do, choosing particular album tracks that we've recorded that fit in with the show. But not everybody not everybody would know them. Yeah. In terms of, but it- we, I want to make sure that they, even though they might not know them, they'll still enjoy them. Yeah. Even hearing them for the first time. What sort of what sort of uh, songs are you talking about in that in that case? Well, we do um, songs from the very first album, like uh, Clockwork Creep, which was an album track. We do Feel the Benefit, which was never a single from the Deceptive Benz album. Yeah, uh, we're doing a song, a new song as well um, that I wrote uh, called Floating in Heaven. Uh, oh, that that's has, the Brian uh, May one. The Brian May, yeah, yeah. Well, I, that I worked with Brian May plays on on that. Yeah. Um, so I'm putting that in because it's a song that I think people will get right away. It's not, the, you know, some songs you need like three or four listens before you actually get it. But so that that I put in because it's interesting. It's about it got a very interesting subject and it's new and it kind of it's a little refreshing uh thing to put in in the set. It's a great song, and when you see it with the images. Uh, the astro- yeah. astrology astronomy I- images that you see with it, just uh, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So I'm really proud of that. And working with Brian was great as well. Your songs have been covered by uh, you know many, 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 many people over over the years. Have you always enjoyed that process of someone taking one of your songs and doing a version of it, <laughs> or has there been moments when you've gone, "Oh God, I wish he hadn't done that"? <laughs> Both. But more the former rather than the latter. Right. There, there has been the odd one. You thought, oh, wow, why did you do it like that? But it's a great compliment that uh, when somebody covers a song that you've written or co-written. So, but generally, I mean, I always find it really, really interesting when someone does it, and it, particularly if they do have a different take on it. Yeah. The relationship you have with the ten CC members now, how is how is is that between the four of you? Uh, well, the only person I've, I'm in regular contact with is Kevin Godley. Yeah. Uh, Kevin has made videos that we use in the 10CC show. Uh, we've been involved in various projects together. We did a uh, an EP together in uh, 2006. And we, there's always some sort of project. Uh, actually, Kevin's just made a video for me for a song that is going to be on my next um, solo album. Uh, it was it, it's a song that required some visuals, and uh, he did a he's made a beautiful uh, video for it. Yeah, was that is it as simplistic as the vision that that uh, that Kevin and Lol had 
was was they were moving off into kind of more of a, a visual part of the creative process, and and you and Eric were more still into the kind of just the doing the music and not that. Is that is that a simplistic no, version that, of that? That, that, it, uh, that their involvement in videos and the sort of MTV area actually came a little bit later. Oh, okay. It was it was really an, an album they were working on that featured a. An, uh, an attachment to the guitar that they'd uh, the invented. Yeah. The gizmo. And the album, they were making an album, but it wasn't just a single album, it was a triple album, and it was taking a long time. And we needed to get back onto the the cycle of writing, recording, rehearsing, going on tour, promotion, etc. And they were very into what they were doing, and actually I think they got fed up with, that it, things had got too predictable for them, and they didn't like that. And yeah. they decided that they they would uh, they'd had enough. Did that which hurt? Was a great shame. Did that? Did yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very much. I, I'm very. Uh, I was very upset about that. And uh, Kevin and I've talked quite at length about it about right. what we how we should have handled it. Uh, but you know, we're all very clever after the event. Ever a time when the the the, the foursome could have reunited for something post all, all there, that? There, there was talk of it at, at various points, but it, it never really never really came together. Yeah. I want to talk to you about Andrew Gold because I, I am a huge fan of Andrew Gold. I think he's a, a yes. brilliant songwriter and a, and a really good singer. Um, and producer and all-round musician yeah. as well. Uh, that came back because the record company wanted to put you together with a, a, an American uh, sort of uh, in- That's right, a writer producer. Yeah. So, yeah. But, but it, it sort of finished up being beyond that for you. Well, it did. I, it was. Um, it didn't really work, actually, although the, 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 the three tracks that Andrew co-wrote and produced with us uh, were all singles, so that says something. But um, it came at a time when we, Eric and I, went on a break we'd had enough of each other i think and uh but i i was very fond of andrew and and recognized a kind of a kindred spirit in him and i said i've got a little studio at home come over to uh to the uk and come and stay with me for a couple of weeks and let's see what happens and he stayed for about six months <laughs> and we really bonded and uh made i think some fantastic music together um and we were talking not long before he was suddenly taken from us um, about doing a new album together and doing some work together. Yeah. Extraordinary but, talent. Yeah, absolutely. And, and a couple of those, I'm surprised a couple of those uh, th- uh, songs that you did with Wax weren't bigger hits than they, than they were. I think one yeah. of them was an enormous yeah. hit in Sweden or somewhere, wasn't it? Right Between the Eyes was in the Spanish charts for uh, about six months. And uh, it might have had something to do that, uh, with the fact that our, that our record company guy in Spain was called Jesus. So that might have something to do with it, I would think. Who knows? Have it, have it in your contract that every A&R person in every country in the world has to be called Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Or at least Jesus. Um, Jesus, yeah. The songs you're writing now, are you as, as happy with the songs you're writing now? As I mean, we talked about the, the one that uh, that you've got in the show now that, that, that Brian yeah. May played on the version of. Float, yeah, Floating in Heaven. Yeah, yeah very much so. Yeah, I, I, I'm... Finding it, I'm as productive as ever and enjoying it. There's no pressure because, in that, uh, you know, hoping to uh, any commercial success, it, it's very difficult to play songs with with other artists. So many artists write themselves or have already have like built-in production teams. It's quite simple, really. If I like it, I record it. Mm-hmm. And and I'm I'm sort of in control of the whole thing. I'll put an album together and then put it out, and I hope you like it. Uh, and if you don't, don't well, I'm, that's okay. I've already had the pleasure of the writing and the recording and the whole process. I love. Yeah. Do you know how many songs you've written? I know it's somewhere towards a thousand. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I think there's some kind of different versions of them in there, but it's a lot. Does it's that include a, the one lot. that you wrote when you were eleven year old and you got your guitar from your <laughs> or your cousin or whatever from Spain and you banged that's out your right. first song? No, that's not in there. No, <laughs> didn't make well, the it's cut. A, it was 
it was like three chords that I discovered <laughs> just playing with one finger o- over the frets. Um, and uh, I, I guess that was that was the first thing I ever wrote. There was a massive gap till I was sort of 17, 18. The Yardbirds might have been able to do something with that, Graham. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> Maybe I should revisit it. <laughs> uh, must still be a buzz for you when you're, you know, when you're cruising around and, and for your love or bus stop or no milk today or you stumble across one of those songs being played on the radio. Yeah, no, it's great. It, it is lovely. There's always a weird moment when you say you're getting to an elevator, say, or something, and something that you've written or co-written comes on, you go, I know that. And then it's like for a millisecond, then you go, oh, yeah, I wrote that. That's right. <laughs> I mentioned, Andrew God, I wanted to ask you, 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 you toured with Ringo because uh, we obviously yeah, there's it, an Australian connection there with Colin Hay from Men at Work who, who plays with Ringo uh, all the Colin time. Colin Hay, uh, uh, who uh, we went to see uh, playing in London uh, a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, yes, Colin was part of the, uh, the, the All-Star Band and a joy to work with, as was... Um, Everybody in the band, they were. It was great. Yeah, loved it. But it must be, and I know you've spoken about this, but standing on stage and looking to your right hand side and seeing Ringo Starr must be must be yeah. a freak out moment. It it, it, it is, and that, um, the last solo album I put out, which is called uh, Modesty Forbids, yeah. the opening track is called Standing Next to Me, which is about my time with Ringo, and uh, Ringo plays on the track. Yeah, that must have been uh, that must have been a nice moment. Yeah, it's great. We're looking forward to the tour. I could I could talk to you Thank about you. A, a million a million of the songs that you've written, <laughs> but you've you've uh, I mean made such an impression on uh, on mod music, and that's something that I, I guess uh, I know you don't uh, go oh wow, but uh, there must be moments when people sort of tell you how how much an influence and how much a, an effect your music has had on their lives because it certainly has. Well, that it's very it's very nice to hear. That's very nice to hear. If you can bring some happiness or, you know, people resonate with songs, even if it makes them cry, which it does sometimes in the in the best possible way, um, I take that as a great compliment because, it, uh, you know, when you're writing a song, you want people to feel what you're feeling and you, and you want it to... It, 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 music does something that other things can't do. It, it, it reaches so deep into your soul mm. and resonates. And uh, when you know you're making people happy with doing that is a, is a, is a great gift. Uh, I'm, I'm very grateful for it. It's also a fabulous chronological timeline of the, of the, the moments in your life. For me, whether it's starting in radio and, and playing the Dean and I and Rubber Bullets and then sort yeah. of, you know... It, Several years later, playing "I'm Not in Love" and "Dreadlock Holiday" and "I'm Mandy Fly Me," those songs. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's it's great. You're part of the soundtrack of our lives, Graham, and we look forward to seeing you in Australia, mate. And I want to thank you so much for spending some time with me and having a chat. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Good nice on you. speaking to you. Thanks so much. Cheers, mate. See you. Bye bye.
riding on truck and right I heard a dark voice beside of me And I looked round in a state of fright I saw four faces, one man A brother from the gutter They looked me up and down a bit And turned to each other That is uh, the end of uh, this show. We've we're done now. Hope you enjoyed those uh, th- that last song that uh, we played of of uh, Graham's is uh, "Floating in Heaven," which is the one that uh, he has Brian May helping him out on guitar on that one. Uh, now, what we're going to do, Brian? I haven't t- I haven't told you about this yet, but this is one of the things that we're introducing starting on the next episode. At the end of each show, I'm going to play a song by uh, a new Australian song because the. Australian songs don't get played anywhere anymore and there's all these people making these great new songs. Now, we talk a lot yep. in this program to people who've made songs in the past and we play those songs and more than happy to do that, but there's a lot of people still making some great music. Your friend Tim Henwood's got a new single out that we're going to talk to him about. Um, all right. Uh, there's, a, there's a duo uh, knocking around who we're going to play their song uh, in a couple of weeks' time. Um, I was listening today to... Uh, I, guess, I guess the rest of the... Shows will just be one of mine, I guess. When when are you doing a new one? Are you? Oh, I think I've got a couple, and you haven't played on the show. Well, I think we'll play them. But uh, Murray uh, Murray Cook from the Wiggles, uh, his band, the Soul Movers, who we've had on uh, oh, yeah. this program, they got a new song out, which is really good. So uh, we're going to at the end of each show play one of those songs, um, one oh, of these new Australian songs, uh, or newest song by an Australian artist. It might not be someone we know; it might be someone we don't know. But just if you know of anybody who's making, still making really good music, it's not getting played on the radio. It's not got a TV show that it can go on. So you only hear about it on podcasts and uh, and online and stuff. So we want to help. Yeah, I think that's a great idea, Kev, and I'm glad I thought of it. <laughs> <laughs> and and we will be playing uh, some some really good stuff. So we'll, we'll yeah, Timmy Henwood's one. He'll, we'll talk to Tim in the next week or so, and and get him on the program and uh, and play his new song too. He's so, the nicest man in rock and yeah, roll. Yeah, he's a good fella. Uh, and a reminder about Murcotts. Uh, give him a ring. That number one three hundred triple five five seven six. Kev. Mercots.edu.au. That is the website you need to go to. Hope you enjoyed this edition of the Life of Brian podcast. More coming. Brian Cadd's going to join us and have a chat uh, in the coming weeks. Uh, Randy Backman and his son Tal Backman are going to join us and have a chat. So we've got some good people coming up. So, uh, oh, so sounds like you're taking care of business there, Kev. Oh, he's here all week, ladies and gentlemen. No, he's not actually. He's going right now. See you, Brian. Director of the Bar, Brian Maddox. Wow.